there's like psychologists who have argued that solitude is one of your ability to embrace solitude is one of the greatest hallmarks of development of human development one of the the highest levels mm -hmm. of human development to really be comfortable with your your mind um your built-in imagination processes and to be intensely mindful of that um tends to be correlated and, and to activate a particular brain network we've been studying called the default mode network or uh, I like to call it the imagination network. The more that you can tap into that imagination brain network has been correlated, again, statistically, uh, with things like um, compassion, a sense of self, like a construction, like meaning, meaning in your life. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. This is James Schmachtenberger, CEO and co-founder of Qualia. I appreciate your support of our podcast, Collective Insights, and I encourage you to try the formula that launched our company, Qualia Mind. Qualia Mind promotes life-changing enhancements to your focus, energy, and overall mental wellness. This podcast interviews world-renowned experts on crucial aspects of mental wellness, such as sleep, exercise, and mindset training. But if you also want to add the life-changing brain nourishment to your diet, Try Qualia Mind at neurohacker.com. You can use code James for an extra 15% off. That's Qualia Mind with code James at neurohacker.com. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast. My name is Daniel. I'm a head of research and development here. We are delighted to have Scott Barry Kaufman with us today. He is a cognitive scientist and uh, educational philosopher. He is a professor of positive psychology at University of Pennsylvania and has written a number of really uh, kind of defining works in the topic of intelligence and creativity and um, positive psychology, human potential. And so we are here to dive in today to what creativity is, how do we identify it, how do we develop it, what its relationship is with intelligence and other interesting human capacities and wherever else the conversation goes. So Scott. Welcome. Thanks, man. That was a really kind intro. Thanks. It's great to be here. Fun to have you here. So um, we just dive right in. Um, I, I know that you get asked this all the time, but I think it is worth actually just doing a minute on what got you in this path, right? So you were diagnosed with learning disabilities, and then you end up graduating top of your class at Yale, uh, PhD in uh, psychology and going on to be in the top of your fields. Um, how does that happen? Well, it didn't start off with that uh, potential for that. Like, it'd be very hard to forecast that you look at from age zero to, let's say, 16, 15, 16. There would have been no indications of potential for that. Um, I was in special education as a kid because I had a lot of uh, fluid in my ears. Actually, the first three years of my life, I was essentially deaf because I could could barely hear what other people were saying. There was so much fluid in my ears. And you know, when they uh, when people are blind and you know they they if they can do amazing operations for people to see, they don't actually see immediately. It's not like you you go a whole life not seeing and then the day they do the operation, you suddenly, you, there's a big top down part of that. You need to like actually learn what it means to see. And so when I had an operation for my ears, I had to learn what it meant to, to listen and to process things in real time for the first time. So I was behind and I uh, remember just thinking a lot as a kid, uh, just thinking a lot about like, what am I capable of, of feeling a dual identity, feeling on the one hand, being held back uh, because of the expectations of others based on this learning disability, but then on the other hand, I felt within me uh, potential to, not just potential, like like a yearning for intellectual challenges. So it was a very difficult um, thing to reconcile with each other. And I, as I got, you know, moved on in the grades and eventually did the self-determination to take myself out of special education in high school and see what I was capable of accomplishing. I was like, wow, like if, if I could start accomplishing, and then I actually started to accomplish in, in high school. I was like, wow, if I actually, like if I was capable of all this before, like really, like I had no idea. 
And so then I thought like about others, like what, what, how much potential in them like is possible. And if they just actually try um, or, uh, and really apply themselves or really get engaged. I like the word engagement a lot. We can circle back to that later if you want. And, uh, and it really spurred those research interests. And I was lucky to discover in college a whole field that de devoted to studying human intelligence. So I started off in the human intelligence field and with IQ and um, all those traditional metrics. And I've been slowly um, learning more and more about human potential more generally, but I started off in intelligence. Was that a fair sort of summary? It was quick. Yeah, definitely. So you actually had a physical medical issue that was not a neurological issue. It was actually the mechanics of your ears that yeah. created an auditory processing. And then by the time you could actually fix the mechanics of your ears, the whole dynamic of making meaning from words and auditory processing had not neuroplastically developed in the same way. And so you had to redevelop it. Yeah, so, so how many kids do you think actually have, and people have some sensory processing challenges, even, and it might be not even as severe as yours, but subclinical that end up leading to a lower degree of uh, function in life, psychological or cognitive function that they can figure out workarounds for or corrections for? That's a great question. And, you know, you asked about auditory in particular, but I, if, if I can broaden that for a second, I've been on this kind of mission to, to find that information across the board of all learning disabilities. Yeah. Because, and there's this emerging field that I'm uh, just wrapped up a book on trying to get it more into public consciousness. It'll be coming out next year on uh, a new freight, a, a new classification in school called twice exceptional. Yeah. Kids who, uh, I mean, not to, you grow up, you can be an adult who's twice exceptional in the sense that you have, um, on the one hand, lots of, uh, areas of strengths that go to the gifted level. Um, and on the other hand, you have lots of, uh, difficulties or, or, um, some particular learning disabilities, um, in one package. And what I, have been noticing, and I think this relates to your question, is that you know, a lot of people who uh, fit that classification, their gifts may mask some of their real learning challenges. Right. Also, their learning challenges can mask some of their gifts, and you get all sorts of interesting, unique um, outputs from that. You may get like um, just neutrality. You might get someone who just looks average, but has these amazing gifts that, that really want to come out and express themselves. Um, you may have the situation you have someone who looks really disabled, but they have all these gifts. Them kind of, you may have someone actually, and the other possibility we identified in this book is, you know, the person in the gifted classroom that is so smart that they've over, they've compensated so well for any difficulties that, um, that they don't get support for the, their real difficulties. Okay. Uh, teachers say, oh, you're just, you're, you're gifted. So therefore you can't have difficulties. So I really want to reconcile that. Um, that that uh, that false dichotomy we set up. So they're on both ends of the bell curve at the same time. Same time. We're and so standard deviations. So obviously, learning how to work with their strengths is a huge uh, aspect of it. Also, learning how to ameliorate or support some of the things that are challenging for them. And is that a lot of your focus? Yeah, and it's a, that's a big part of it. And, and there's this, just this general idea of, you know, what we could talk about creativity later, but, you know, how can we get them engaged in the creative process in a way that really draws in their strengths? I mean, there's such a focus in our school system on remediation and um, standards and, re and reaching standards as opposed to reaching greatness or reaching um, some sort of optimal, you know, I'm not actually not a fan of greatness as much anymore as I used to be. More self-actualization is more, uh, more interesting to me or um, how, just, you know, how, how can we have people use their full powers or full potentialities? And we're, I think we're doing a terrible job in our school system of, 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 of that at all. It's not, it's not a goal at all of school. You know, right. there really does seem to be this goal of getting people to standards. So there's, I mean, there's something so powerful about your story, obviously, which is that you are helping to redefine what, I mean, for education as a whole, for what the whole world understands, what intelligence is, what creativity is, what self-actualization is, what education could be and should be that helps realize um, human potential in people. And none of that would have been predicted from who you were for the first decade and a half plus of your life. And 
that's, I mean, that's a very profound thing, right? Because there are so many people who might be listening to this, who, even if they went further before realizing it, have some glass ceiling on what they think their potential cap is. And that's obviously not a fixed ceiling. Absolutely. Dana. And, you know, we share a common interest and it's relevant in, in, in this and I've been trying to apply it to my work and that's nonlinear dynamics. Um, and um, I know this is an area we're both interested in. When you apply it to human development, um, you, you start to get a better sense of what potential looks like and, and, you realize, and you really realize just how we're going about this incorrectly uh, in terms of identifying potential. We're really um, letting so many people fall by the wayside. I can give you an example. My uh, colleague here at Penn in the School of Education, uh, Mike uh, Nakua, has this phrase, the crooked A's. Those are the students who took a crooked path to straight A's, but you never would have predicted them ahead of time. And when you look and do a systematic analysis of these so-called crooked A's, I'm not, I'm not a biggest fan of that phrase, crooked A's. It makes people think of you know crooked like crime, but it, you get it. You get it. Nonlinear, right? A crooked path. Um, when you actually do a really good analysis of these individuals, you find that in a lot of ways, um, the setbacks and the challenges they overcome actually is what made them um, really uh, push ahead later on. And we don't take that dynamic into account at all in our school system. Yeah. To the extent to which you don't fall in line of a, of a standard sequence of development is actually considered a bad thing as opposed to perhaps a good thing for growth. It's very interesting with regard to sensory processing disorders in particular and what one might do to compensate for that that leads to some kind of unique orientation or capacity. Um, you know, Bucky Fuller ended up crediting a lot of what gave him the uniqueness he had to his early childhood farsightedness and blindness. And I'm sure you know the story, but he was so farsighted that all he could see were things very far away and outlines and big pictures. And he became known as one of the greatest forecasters and generalists who could see very far away and outlines and big pictures. And that there was kind of a, a wiring towards uh, looking at big pictures and far away first. And that even once he got glasses later, that wiring continued to be meaningful. And because when he had the first build structures and he couldn't see he did it tactily and when he did it tactily putting toothpicks and piece together he found that triangles had a lot more integrity than squares do which led to insights that the geodesic dome came from later right it was applying a tactile intelligence to something that would almost always be visual and so it's and that story shows up again and again in so many stories of kind of remarkable capacity was coming at it through a non-traditional direction that led to novel insights and that even once the disorder got corrected for, if it did, those capacities stayed online. I love that example. And, you know, we, we talk about creativity. Creativity almost uh, necessitates a nonlinear path. Mm -hmm. I almost by definition, uh, if you define creativity as being able to call something novel and useful and novel and meaningful, um, it requires, a, you know, another area of interest we have, and I've, I've really enjoyed watching some of your talks online, is emergence, right? And, you know, with, uh, Creativity, I really think creativity is this emergent property um, where you don't know where you're going to get there. Like when you when you analyze and do a systematic analysis of the creative process of like Picasso, of, of how great works of art or um, great even scientific discoveries were made, these weren't things that were planned out in advance. And so I really, I really don't think we leave enough room in our education system for emergence. I, I'd love to get you to see if you I'm sure, I, I, I'd love to see what you think about that. But, um, but another way of putting that is, you know, we don't leave enough room in our, in our models for children to surprise us and to surprise themselves. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I'll, I'll share a pretty pejorative view on what modern education has been. Uh, and I think the, the history on it is not that far from this, which is we have been developing children not for unique self-actualization and self-realization but you know we developed them at first to be able to be uh, assembly line workers or fulfill any particular kind of fungible role and then also to be you know warriors or soldiers but really where they were identified with a set of fungible skills and you could take someone out and put someone else in i'm looking for an mba right and that meant that you had to take whatever the uniqueness of that being in terms of their interests their passion their proclivities their whatever were and crafted into some unique fungible role and in the in the face of technological automation today 
artificial intelligence and robotics, it's so it's such a deep insight to realize all of those are the things that will be automated, right? Over the next very short period of time, any kind of predefined, here's a function that society needs, let's condition the human to be that function, those things will all be automated and no one actually has a lot of intrinsic motive to be an automatable function. And so you actually have to create a capitalist system to extrinsically motivate people to do the shitty jobs that, whether it's a labor job or an accounting job, that ultimately doesn't have deep creativity in it because we are only intrinsically motivated to creative functions. And if you, and then here's the interesting part is that as soon as we have, right, the, the current best estimate is something like conservative estimate, a third of all jobs, current jobs are automated in the next 15 years and on an exponential curve that continues to automate jobs and they are not recoverable. So that is the end of what we have known of as capitalism so far, because you, a society with that many unemployed people breaks down. Um, and so we are looking at people like Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and et cetera, saying we need a universal basic income to be able to deal with that, but to do what? We're in this really neat place that one of the core concepts underneath capitalism was that society has all these roles that need people to do them, even though the roles aren't fun. So how do we create an education system that trains people for the workforce? As soon as we actually can automate most of those things and where the jobs don't need the people, then you can also start to make a macroeconomic system where the people don't need the jobs. And then you get to make an educational system that is not focused on making fungible task doers, but on really facilitating intrinsic motivation. What, what is this one passionate about, fascinated in, have proclivity towards? And that's a just, it, it's a completely different goal set. I mean, I, I love that. I absolutely love what you just said. And I would be honest if I didn't, you know, I really do. And, um, I mean, you really do run that thought experiment. You really play that out in your mind. What could the workplace look like in that world? Well, there would be no, you change the concept of a workplace. That you, there would be a real difference in terms of you're not trying to send out resumes to fit a predetermined job, but you're actually telling society, probably triple what you're saying, uh, which I think would be really conducive to creativity. You would get it'd be ideal to get to a point where you could show society what what you can uniquely contribute. Yes. And so therefore, it's 100% intrinsically um, driven. Um, so, so the whole idea of the resume, of the job interview, of the, of the get college acceptance, of the, I mean, that would reimagine, I mean, that'd be so hard for people to imagine that, but I feel like we can imagine that, right? Yeah. Totally. And what, what intelligence is in the day where Kasparov is beaten by chess, you know, at a early AI that are on an exponential curve and, you know, Go players are being beaten just, it means, it means in even more today to really think about what intelligence is being that very narrow definitions of intelligence, humans aren't even that relevant in the very near future, but broad definitions of intelligence and creativity are still things that humans have unique capacity at. And it also happens to be not only unique capacity, but it's where all of the intrinsic joy of life happens to come. And so this kind of definition between problem solving and problem finding, right? Where problem solving, you have a predefined problem solution space. And now I'm looking for the, looking for the solution. Deep learning can just beat the shit out of humans, right? And, but school is developing people almost exclusively to do that so far, which is, here, we already know what good is. We, we have predefined as a society what it means to be a good surgeon or a good mathematician or a good whatever, and you are fulfilling some functions within that. Problem finding is actually redefining what good is. What is actually fundamentally interesting and meaningful that we want to move into as new spaces? And that is really deeply aligned with the creative impulse, right? Which is not how do I get good at a predefined set of things, but how do I explore territory of what is actually meaningful that has not already been explored? Oh, well, yeah. You know, the, the, one of the, the core drives underlying creativity is the exploration drive. And um, this is a, a drive that my colleagues and I have been trying to unpack in all of its various forms. So, you know, we, we have... Um, and all you know, it's it's very strongly tied to the dopamine system, but there are different dopamine projection projections. And did you say the inspiration drive? Oh, sorry, exploration. Exploration, yeah. Well, exploration is correlated with the exploration, yeah, yeah. Drive, but okay. the fundamental drive is exploration. Yeah. Uh, 
which is associated with dopamine production, but it's very that's a very simplistic model, just say dopamine. But you can actually start, start mapping out the projections um, that don't, and, and realize that there are more evolved in the course of human evolution. Yes, we have some of these uh, subcortical dopamine projections uh, that are associated with reward sensitivity to primal drives like sex, power, and money. But what my colleagues and I have started to chart out is a different dopamine system. Primarily, I want to give credit to Colin DeYoung, my closest collaborator, who's really done a lot of really great work mapping out um, this other drive that um, is more recently evolved, which has to do with the reward value, not of you know, our ancestral rewards, like I just said, money, power, or, you know, and sex, but the value of information, the exploration of, yeah. of information. And, um, and, uh, and you know, um, yeah, I mean, you could just stop there and say, you know, the, the reward value of information, and that would make enough sense to you, I think. Um, but I think it's so interesting that uh, we, we still in our society, we focus so much on the reward value of kind of these ancestral things that we, we have so much potential in us that we don't, as a, as a human species that we don't tap into. So the, your most recent book is on this topic of creativity, right? Yeah. Where to yeah. create. And you identify a number of kind of core drives or practices that are key to the creative impulse. Yeah. And obviously anyone who's interested in this topic should go read the book. Um, but can we just do some highlights? What are some key highlights of uh, how the creative mind works, how the creative brain works, how the creative process works, and some things that people can do to actually uh, do. So first, I'll just ask, is creativity innate or developable? And to the degree that it's developable, how? Well, if you view, it depends how you view creativity. Um, I like to view it in a way that is, by definition, developable, you know. It's, um, so, you know, it's sort of a way of being in the world. It's a way of constantly relating to ideas, relating to people, relating to, you know, and it and, and involves, we have 10 things in that book, you know, one of them is nonconformity. And nonconformity can involve really not being so susceptible to external, external ideas to really think something through yourself and, and make sure that you really um, have arrived at a conclusion that you're satisfied with and that you're constantly asking questions and you're constantly questioning yourself and or not yourself, but questioning, um, you know, ideas and questioning, you know, kind of being playful in it. Um, and I said being playful because play is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a certain, uh, you see in creative people, a certain, uh, what's the word for it? Like, a, if I say playfulness and that's just like saying the same word in a different way, a certain levity in a sense, or a certain like, um, being able to um, take ideas and be willing to turn them on their head or um, and just have fun with the whole space of possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, daydreaming is another big one. I don't think we build enough time into our day to, uh, you know, in the workplace and school to really let people daydream about the f about possible futures and, um, and things that, that could be, could happen. Uh, you know, there's there's one trait that I that we, we talk about in the book that is sensitivity. It's called sensitivity, and and that one is maybe is not as learnable as the others. I, I think that probably they all differ to the extent to which they there, there could be like explicit exercises or programs. But the sensitivity one's interesting because there do seem there, there does seem to be certain temperaments that um, are more conducive to creativity because they're more attuned to the world. They're more attuned to um, to soaking up uh, little subtle parts of what's going on, and they see things that they're able to then connect the dots. And, and I find that really interesting. I've been studying that uh, trait, and I've been studying it. It's close, close cousin is called openness to experiences. And openness experiences is a, I found my research is the number one predictor of creativity. And the interesting about the learnability of open experience is still, I want to be you know, honest with you, the, the empirical evidence is the jury's still out on just how that much, like what we can do to, to intentionally improve that. Because we're finding some interesting research and you know, at the very lower level, uh, people who score higher on this trait of, uh, this trait of openness to experience, they actually, um, their visual system is more complex. They're actually able to see 
mm-hmm. things, more colors, more hues. They're able to, um, my dissertation showed that they're able to, uh, they're faster in implicit learning, like unconsciously, intuitively soaking up patterns. Um, I bring this up not to discourage any of the listeners who are saying, darn, I'm really low in openness to experience. That's not my point. I, I feel like what I try to reconcile in my work is on the one hand, I'm really curious and want to study stuff scientifically. Um, and I want to make it clear that, you know, the science of creativity, it's not always easy how to translate that into the trainability realm of life. But I find it just really interesting that, um, that this openness to experience idea and, um, is so correlated. And I wonder if we could cr- really create exercises for people to be more open and aware of and perce- perceptive of their environment and of people and of larger patterns. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, you said creativity is an emergent property of a number of things. So you're mentioning four here. You've got 10 in the book. That's right. I think each of those are themselves emergent properties of lots of different um, causal factors, influencing factors. And so I think one of the problems when we start thinking about developability versus innateness of intelligence, creativity, talent, whatever, is that we're thinking of it in a radically too reductive sense. And so... Uh, you know, we might look at something like uh, visual perception difference leading to a statistically increased chance of openness to new experience. But then there are some blind people who have radical creativity and openness to experience. And so if we just look from a statistical point of view, what that means is a whole lot of determining factors that we're not paying attention to and we're averaging out the way they all play together. Um, because from a statistical point of view, you shouldn't have succeeded. Oh, right, right. No, no, I, I mean, you're, ra- you're raising a terrific point. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I, I mean, I'm raising your point. Um, and so uh, with regard to something like the developability of all these, the idea that there might be certain kind of intrinsic orientations, let's call it genetic and whatever else, but the genetic expression itself is being modulated in real time, right? Epigenetic Um, modulation is a huge factor for what proteins are coding and neuroplasticity is a huge factor even within genetics and epigenetics. So pretty much all of our traits are whatever our nature is through whatever our nurture is combination of those. And the nurture is always modulatable. So then we start looking at, it might not be developed the exact same way for everyone might be slightly different developmental paths. That's the key. But the thing that you said that I actually really want to dive back into is all those traits that you're describing are traits that are not only not actively developed in education, but pretty commonly seen as undesirable things. Right. So daydreaming is, I mean, there are pretty common psychological assessments where the amount of daydreaming is correlated with negative assessments on the kid, right? And you're actually saying, this is one place where, for the most part, we wouldn't have to cultivate daydreaming. We would just have to stop repressing it and actually tell people, no, it's not bad. So, like, say more about this. I mean, all of these, nonconformity, right? These playfulness, these are pretty much innate to most kids, and we train them out. There's, there's just such a great Abraham Maslow quote. Who's, he's one of my heroes. And there's a great quote of his about how self-actualization is not the uh, – it's something that um, that springs out once you pull away all these blocks right. you know, that, that that's in us. I I wish I could remember the exact quote, but yeah, but that that's sort of how he thinks of it. And I I think creativity is similar like that. By the way, he viewed self-actualization as an emergent property as well. I think people really right. mischaracterize what he meant by that, and and the, what he actually never drew a pyramid. You know, that right. was like people after he died that drew that. But anyway, um, you know, so I think that. The idea that there's, you know, the circling that back to the idea you said about multi-potentiality or, or um, multiple paths to the same, I mean, that really gets to the core of, of my theory of intelligence that I proposed on Gifted was the multiple paths to greatness. And you're really viewing intelligence, whether it's intelligence or creativity, as, um, as part of self-expression. You know, you don't have to like divorce it from the self. You don't have to make it something external to what we naturally um, want to want to do. 
Uh, and I think the more, the le you know, the less we divorce it from that, the, the better, the easier it will be to get it out of people, uh, not in a for forcefully, will willful way. But also, you know, I really loved your point as well about the point that you, you basically reflected back on me and kind of, yeah, you, you, it was really neat, neat how you did that. Um, but yeah, I'll stop there for now because there's so much. So, okay, so I, w I want to talk about daydreaming for a minute because. Like it is as pejorative a thing as I think there is that kids daydreaming or an employee's daydreaming is a sign that they are um, disengaged, uninterested at best, and at worst have some kind of ADD and are incapable of focusing. Um, and the sense of someone being a dreamer or a daydreamer as a pejorative term um, you know, and obviously Steve Jobs tried to reframe that and, you know, a, a number of people did, but it's still, okay, they're just daydreaming. They, they don't actually know how to implement or make things practical. Speak to that dialectic. Like, why is daydreaming a good thing? Or when is it a good thing? When is it not? How do you cultivate the right kind of daydreaming? Would love to hear more. Yeah, great question. I mean, with all these characteristics, and, and some of these characteristics are... Uh, potentially at odds with each other, you can't do them at the same time. And a big part of what you see in the creative emergent process is that you're reconciling or you're switching, you're constantly being adaptable and switching yeah. back and forth in different modes of thought. You know, for instance, I don't see mindfulness as incompatible with daydreaming. We've kind of set up this false dichotomy. And in, in we've said, well, I've, I'm going to be mentioning lots of false dichotomies today. I think we have probably the theme of this talk. Of this of this uh, conversation uh we really set that up because one can be mindful intensely mindful of their daydreams mm -hmm. we don't allow uh people the full opportunity to develop that capacity to be comfortable with themselves to not only be comfortable with this you know i mean there's like psychologists who have argued that solitude is one of your ability to embrace solitude is one of the greatest hallmarks of development, of human development, one of the, the highest levels mm -hmm. of human development, to really be comfortable with your, your mind, um, your built-in imagination processes, and to be intensely mindful of that um, tends to be correlated and, and to activate a particular brain network we've been studying called the default mode network, or uh, I like to call it the imagination network. The more that you can tap into that imagination brain network has been correlated, again, statistically, uh, with things like um, compassion, a sense of self, like a construction, like meaning, meaning in your life. You know, things that we, most schools don't give a damn about these things. You know, like how many in the, in the charter of the school, are they like, we really care more about increasing meaning and compassion in our students than standards, you know? But that's, it's coming, that's coming from the imagination and brain network. It's not coming from the executive attention network by itself which is what we tend to focus so much on as the executive or your ability to like focus on the goals of others and keep them in your working memory. That's, um, you're, you're, so you're saying something that I'm just so delighted by, which is how much false dichotomy where it's actually, rather than these things being in, in fundamental, mutually exclusive dichotomy, they're dialectic. And there's actually a synergy between the dialectic. So one's ability to be totally in the moment and their ability to dream about the future one's ability to accept what is and their desire to make it better. One's, you know, like when all of those different kinds of functions are actually radically synergistic when you realize how to have them synergistic rather than try to kill half of it or have them be a flip-flop. Um, and in doing that, you're actually taking deep aspects of the human experience that have been seen as negative and re-embracing the positive meaning of them. So the default mode network has actually got a bunch of shit lately, right? Um, as being what takes people out of flow states and that in flow states, we want to decrease the activity of the default mode network um, and decrease our sense of uh, daydreaming and identity and et cetera, which is obviously part of a dialectic. Um, but the other part is I think really critical. So speak to us a little bit. I know in the book you identified a bunch of uh, highly creative people and their relationship to daydreaming. Can you like just share a little bit about, and I would love for people for themselves, but also for anyone listening to this who's a parent, to have some sense of 
and examples of daydreaming actually being relevant to someone creating in life. Well, I wrote that book a while ago and I'm having trouble thinking of examples, but uh, you know, you see a lot of, there's kids who have imaginary friends or um, have, I mean, that's, that's part of daydreaming as well because it's not like the person's real or so where else is that coming from? Obviously your daydreams. Um, but there are people who have just vivid imaginary stories in their mm. uh, like worlds, imaginary worlds in their youth. And you find that they're, higher proportion of people who children who had this um were also had a what's called a fantasy orientation um are represented in the macarthur genius awards for instance compared to like the uh, general population or average college students uh there's there's lots of forms of daydreaming to not just like fantastical things but um you know lots of examples of of individuals who were constantly thinking of um, of what they would look like in the future, like future-oriented yeah. thinking, and it seems to be that, that kind of future-oriented thinking is is a really great predictor of lifelong creativity. I mean, E. Paul Tarns found that he found the extent to which these elementary school kids fell in love with a future image of themselves, and and I think that could come from date, you know, giving the opportunity to daydream is when you actually discover that. Um, that predicted 50 years later creative lifelong creative achievement better than any measure of school performance, mm -hmm. any measure, even his tests of creativity, you know, like the, his paper and pencil tests of creativity. So that's a big one. Was there any distinction there between, we all know kids who had parents who kind of have the kids life planned out for them ahead of time, at least in some features, right? What, what um, religion their spouse is going to come from and at least what level of education and economics they're going to achieve. Uh, and the kid actually has a sense of their future self, but it is not their own future self. And they might actually have a lot of attachment to that because they, uh, their parents are not going to approve of them otherwise, et cetera. Was there any distinction that you found? Obviously, it's an easy one to hypothesize between someone who had a future vision of themselves that really emerged from their own proclivities and imagination versus one that was largely imposed. Like someone fed them the dream? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're going to grow up and be a good doctor or a senator or whatever. Like so many kids who grow up have a very strong sense of what they have to be that is based on social expectation, parental expectation. But that doesn't mean there's actually real intrinsic drive. It's all extrinsic. Well, I mean, we do talk about some examples that we talk about that in the, the nonconformity chapter a bit as well. And also all, the importance of authenticity is I see as a big one or not mm -hmm. susceptible to external influences. And, and also just, you know, in order uh, to answer that question, I think in order to really um, do that, to get, reach that level, you really need to kind of understand the boundaries of what are your, what are the values that you, uh, that mean the most to you, what, um, you really have to distinguish self from world in a lot of ways. I think there is this uh, another false dichotomy, you know, that a lot of people think that transcendence means losing your, 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 your identity. Losing yourself is not the same thing to me as losing your identity. And I think that's not really discussed in, in our, and in, in, even by some, you know, Buddha, Buddha scholars um, don't really, I think, nail that point. I think that, right. Um, I think that what we're finding in our own research is the more that you transcend yourself, the stronger your sense of self. And that seems like the biggest dichotomy, paradox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that we're finding that in so many samples now. We're finding that those who get outside themselves, they love outside themselves. We're actually creating a new scale of um, what Maslow called be love or being love, which is loving the being of others. Right. Um, which is, um, deficiency love, which is loving from a place of um, you, need, you need others to fulfill an empty part of yourself. You can actually differentiate these two forms of love and um, we create a scale to measure that. Um, you know, you, you just look in, in all, these sort of, the, all these ways about how it's, it's that, um, that growth aspect um, that the more that you go towards that growth aspect, which you're it's seemingly getting away from yourself, but actually you're, you're affirming 
um, yourself. You're not being as, as influenced by others. Yeah. It's an interesting paradox. A lot of people, it might be hard for them to wrap their head around, including some Buddhist scholars have, like, would, would be like, would, would I even maybe disagree with that, even if I show them the data. But I think that's a truer reality, a picture of reality. Yeah, I agree completely. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, my good friend, uh, Mark Gaffney, wrote a book called Your Unique Self, where he's outlining this ontology and relationship to kind of Buddhist true self with a capital T, which is also no self, right, which is having an experience of consciousness that's undifferentiated. And so there is consciousness of there's basically subjectivity or experience, but there's not an I. And there's not thinking in English words and identity, et cetera. But to just stop there, right? Like you, the only way to really just stop there is to say all of this is illusion and engaging in it is meaningless, which is a really bummer nihilistic perspective um, that is one interpretation of Buddhism um, in which this is Maya, it's illusion, right? And it's also samsara. It's the suffering that when you buy into it, it causes problems. There's a, there's a much more beautiful and I think well-supported perspective, which is, if we take universe as we experience it as real, not the only real, because obviously we're experiencing the tiniest sensory bandwidth of all that is, right? But we take it as real and then meaningful. We see that there is actually a trajectory, right? Evolution has is, is changed with a direction towards more orderly complexity. And with more orderly complexity, new emergent properties. And that's not just physical, but it's the co-evolution of objective and subjective. So at higher degrees of neurological complexity, we get different kinds of expressions of consciousness and also even expressions of love and meaning. So we can see the kind of evolution of the universe into greater orderly complexity as having an interior story, which is also moving into greater degrees of consciousness, creativity, love, and that that is actually a, a emergent meaning of the universe. And we have a possibility to really participate with that. And then in that sense, our identity, right? Most of our identity is the comp. What I'm hearing you say, and the the way I see it is, most of our identities are the compensation for early trauma, where we believe that we weren't enough, we weren't really lovable, and so then hopefully we get some strategy to prove that that isn't true, and so we become smart, or we become funny, or we become good at sports, or whatever it is, where we can get some validation. And then we really identify with that. And then, of course, we have to be in radical competition with anyone else who has that same metric because we define ourselves in a very small set of metrics. And so then if anyone else is better at those metrics, we're just fundamentally not that valuable. And so, but that is all the response to trauma of not feeling lovable and not actually knowing who we are because we aren't how much money we make or how high our IQ is or how good we are at baseball, right? That is one tiny little capacity. But if we see ourselves as this kind of synergistic emergent of all of the factors that make us up, that is really not reducible to any of those factors. There's no way to compare that to anyone else's synergistic emergent of factors. They're, they're actually completely non-comparable because you can only compete on the, on the same metrics. And as soon as you recognize yourself as not metric, metricable, right? Yeah. So then you end up getting a unique self that has a unique perspective and unique things to contribute that is not actually in fundamental competition with anyone. And then you say, well, shit, they have a unique self that has something to offer to the universe that I can't, and I live in a more full universe if I help them self-actualize too. Well, that was uh, very well put. <laughs> I think that's a great state of being, um, but it requires um, moving from the deficiency realm to the growth realm, the being realm. And yeah. That is hard for, uh, that's a lifelong process. I want to say, I want to be very clear. No, no one reaches it. Like, like it's just not a stage, you know, like I don't trust anyone. Any, if there's any guru out there who's, who, who would come up to us and say, well, I've reached that. No, you haven't. You haven't. You're still human. <laughs> uh, and you, you, you can't escape that in, in a certain sense. But you, what you can escape is, um, is, the, is the, um, the attention to it. You can still have that, you can still be human, but shift what you attend to and sort of not let certain aspects of, of our humanity um, play any role in, 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 in our lives. When, you know, this is a very controversial topic, but um, one that I'm passionate about is that I think most of 
what we think of as human nature is really bad science because we have studied human behavior where there has been common ubiquitous conditioning, meaning, you know, we, we have win-lose game theoretic dynamics, right? We have pretty much zero-sum win-lose game theoretic dynamics that condition maximum jealousy, selfishness, competitiveness, etc. And then because those systems are, are ubiquitous, then we say we, we treat it as if they don't exist and then take human behavior within that system as if it's nature and attribute it to genetics and then do evolutionary biology. That's like weird pattern fitting um, confirmation bias pattern fitting. And then if we find an indigenous tribe that doesn't fit that, throw them out as a, as an outlier. Um, but really I think the key insight about humans is that our genetics selected for mimetics, right? They selected for neuroplasticity. And so we are, and it's part of why we are neotenous. We, we are fetal for a year and a half and can't do shit. And every other animal is doing interesting stuff in the first few minutes, including the other primates is because, but it's also why from one generation to the next, they're mostly the same. Even if a gorilla uses a tool, it uses tools the way they did 10,000 years ago. And we are totally different, not just from generation to the next, but even within the course of a lifetime. And so we're born with mostly not a lot of hardwiring because as tool makers that modify our own environments rapidly, we have to be adaptable because throwing spears is not that useful anymore, right? Texting is. We have to be adaptable to the new environment that we come into. And so really our genetics selected for neurologic capacity to be very firm wired by our environment right and when, i think i think modern evolutionary psychology approaches would agree with that very much and when we get that when you say like we're still human most of that what is still human is we're still badly conditioned by the ubiquitous bad conditioning of that we all went to the same shitty school systems and the effects of living within consumer capitalist society and you know, nationalism supported by military industrial complexes, like those dynamics condition the shit out of everybody. Now, what does it mean to be human oh. in a possible near-term future world where the whole education system is just facilitating the unique brilliance and creativity of each kid rather than trying to standardize them and not comparing them on the same metrics to everybody else and where they're not being prepared for a workforce it, I think that what we think of as human that, that we then have to transcend completely changes. Yeah, you said a lot of really uh, good, interesting things there um, that I could re I could respond to like five of those threads, different threads, but uh, which one do I want to start with? Well, one thing, I, I don't know, you, do you read a lot of Eric Fromm? I mean, so this The Scene Society, I, I was rereading that the other day, and I think it, it's really cool because he, uh, kind of makes uh, he would agree with you if he was alive today. You know that we spend so much time in say, in calling people uh, maladjusted or insane or right. uh, or having mental health issues, as opposed to um, thinking of how can we create it's the society that's insane. <laughs> it's right. not the individual who's insane. Um, I think that relates to your point. First of all, um, the uh, the same society. And it really relates to the first point that you said was important in creativity. Yeah. Which is nonconformity to an insane society. Correct. Correct. It's, and, you know, sometimes the greatest height of mental health is being uh, not adjusted to your society. Krishnamurti's famous quote. What do you say? Krishnamurti's famous quote. Oh, yeah. And also, Maslow said that. I'll talk yeah. about Maslow. You know, and I think that. <laughs> But I don't think we really uh, recognize you know, our models of mental and our idea, our talks about abnormality, the DSM for all that, our whole model of thinking about psychiatry is not really thinking like that. Right. Well, I mean, so Krishnamurti's, it's not a good measure of mental health to be well adjusted to a profoundly insane society. Okay, I like it's pretty easy for us to see other societies as insane. We can look at the dark ages and say they were just batshit crazy, right? Like they, they took women who used herbs and burned them at the stake as witches because they didn't only use prayer. And we're like, wow, they were just ubiquitously fucking crazy, right? Like that, that value system is crazy. Or we can look at another religion that we weren't very close with at all and take a voodoo society or whatever it is. We can 
you know, most people are culturally comfortable looking at parts of Somalia and, you know, Northeastern Africa where 90% of the girls get their clitoris cut off in uh, childhood. So for religious reasons and say, wow, that's like an ubiquitous mental illness. They have such sexuality, shame, shame on the body, on femininity, et cetera, that they are doing female genital mutilation ubiquitously. We just see that whole culture as being off, right? That their worldview is just off. But then, of course, they don't see that. And they didn't, the previous ones didn't see it at the time. And then we don't see. So we're extincting 13 species a day. Our solution to di differences with others is, is war. And we're utilizing resources faster than the planet can replenish them, heading towards extinction. And yet, not recognizing that is actually batshit crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. And we have a situation where pretty much everybody has body image issues. Everybody has low-grade anxiety, anhedonia, and depression. So we can say, all right, we have a society that has ubiquitous mental health issues. So being sane, really sane, does mean being not just not adjusted to this society, but someone who would actually have the impulse to help recreate a new one. So then in your, in this model, is it better to be sane or insane? Insane by the bad definition of sanity, which is normalized to a shitty culture, but sane compared to a meaningful definition of human well-being, flourishing, flourishing of life, et cetera. Given that we have fundamentally reconceptualized sane, let's yeah. do that. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I wanted to be clear here. Okay. That's cool. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a big a big book there. <laughs> um, a few of us uh, have been having a conversation a lot about writing a book called Ubiquitous Psychopathology. Um, it needs to be talked about. I mean, it does. There, this, this, this stuff really does need to be challenged more. And this, this idea of, particularly this idea of adjustment society as the marker of mental health. I mean, that, that's a big chestnut that, that needs to be cracked, a big one. Now, when you look at Salvador Dali or Buckminster Fuller or Picasso or whoever you study in creativity and intelligence, they were almost all doing something that was profoundly outside of the existing definition of good. So Salvador Dali's paintings were not good photorealism or good Renaissance art, or good, right? And Bucky was not doing a good job of orthogonal architecture. Um, and so that's kind of fundamental because if someone is being well adjusted to it as it is, and then just adding to it at best, they will make a incremental improvement, but not something really innovative, really innovative means that it's not just the next step on the path of what's already happening. That's right. That's right. Um, that there's a lot of, uh, five, six steps that may, may uh, like insight. I mean, we've been talking much about insight today, but that's um, a huge aspect of, or, or a leap of faith is another way of putting it. Okay, so for people that have listened to this and are interested practically in saying, okay, I'm interested in cultivating to the degree that I can my own creativity, my own insightfulness. Um, we talked about uh, being less, uh, I think the first term you used was uh, less deferring to authority or? Yeah, you know, external, being influenced by external. So having more of an internal locus of control, um, having more playfulness with life. What are, what are a couple things you would suggest are valuable practices or at least insights one can apply to what arises for them that can help them move in the direction of create increased creative impulse. I would say be more attentive to the seemingly familiar, you know, there, there, you find in a lot of people who uh, were creatively immersed, you notice how I'm not saying in creative people, but I'm actually phrasing it. You notice a lot when, this happens. Um, you find there are people who um, constantly find the uh, new meanings in old things. 
You know, yeah. I think it's a very practical thing for listeners to take away. You know, when you, you know, for, and, and that could be a whole way of life from like, you know, in, in, like finding, like, tea, like when you taste your cereal in the morning, you may have had the same cereal for how many days, but you actually think like, are there any new sensations going on here that I've never had before? And that, that's like the most basic level, but it's a whole way of being and you can build up from that very simple, you know, thing of the, of the cereal to, you know, like when you, when you listen and, and someone talking that, you know, like a friend and you think you know everything about that friend, like dropping, you know, that idea of that you know everything about that friend and actually listen, really listen and really see a person for the first time um, as though it's new. That's the key. See everything as though it's new. And you find that process um, statistically, and I'll end on this, makes it much more likely for creativity to emerge. So I think this is radically important because like you mentioned, the, the exploration impulse being dopaminergic, we are oriented to uh, seek novelty, right? Um, and that's in dialectic with being uh, scared, scared of the unknown to a certain degree. But I think one of the signs of deep mental health is the degree to which one has a more positive relationship with the unknown. And so they have a kind of more excitement around novelty than wanting predictability and uh, keeping things the same. But so there's an impulse towards novelty. And for a lot of people, that looks like breaking up with their spouse and getting a new spouse every year or a new partner. It looks like wanting to travel and jump out of planes and like get novelty externally. Right. And you're actually saying that increasing our sensitivity to novelty everywhere. That's the key. The, the key is it's not that uh, the former of what you just described, that's the stereotype of what, what people think when they think of exploration. But actually, you get deeper meanings um, the more that you stay with one stimulus. Right. Again, this is another false dichotomy, right? This is like, that's what you should label today's whole episode. You know, like, you know, these things, like having, um, a part, you know, divorce rates are so high and we think the you know the reason that is because oh some people are positive well, that's because we're not really a non-monogamous species by innateness or whatever i don't think that's really thinking about it the right way i don't think that people uh really um when they enter relationships um well, first of all they bring a lot of like expectations of what a relationship should be and mm -hmm. that right away is already gets my point you know is you're already bringing all those and you're imposing that on on a reality as opposed to letting things deepen and grow because you're constantly cultivating all from within as opposed to all from without. Right. Now it's interesting because what you're saying right now is a, is a kind of classic Buddhist beginner's mind teaching, right? Come don't, don't think that you know who your partner is or that you have seen these trees on this walk a million times before. One of the things that blows people's minds when they first take mushrooms is if they take a soup, if they take a very high dose, they're seeing things that aren't there. They're having visual hallucination. But if they take a low dose, they see the tree and they start crying because it's so fucking beautiful. It overwhelms them and they could be in devotion to it forever. But it looks the exact same, right? It's not purple and differently shaped. It's still green. It's like, why is it so fucking beautiful? And they realize because they're just radically more present with it. And they're seeing it with new eyes to see. But now here's an interesting thought, right? And that is one of my favorite practices. By the way, if someone is experimenting with mushrooms and they experience that, is for them to start practicing seeing reality as if they were on mushrooms afterwards intentionally when they're not and really opening their eyes to that. But there, I wouldn't say that historically most branches of Buddhism are really oriented towards novelty and creativity right? There's a lot of kind of traditional orientation. So even though they're seeing everything with new eyes, so life feels kind of creatively full, that doesn't translate to a creative impulse. They might paint a Tonka the same way it's been painted for 10 centuries. Um, so what is the translation between seeing the world with new eyes, so novelty is coming in, and then the transition where the novelty is coming out? I love it. I love it. Okay. I I do a lot of thinking about this and, and but trying to reconcile um, like there's another thread that relates to that you said like about a half hour ago which I've been wanting to respond to which um, you know in the in the in the uh, meditation literature um, if you read Cabot's in for instance 
he treats the default vote network as evil. <laughs> and as like, you know, we should, to the extent to which you deactivate that is the extent to which you're more enlightened. And I call BS on that. I wrote a whole article, um, which I can send you for Scientific American, like, like reconciling um, both executive attention with default mode coupling yeah. as opposed to being yes. apart from each other. I, I can send you that. A paper. I, I don't think a lot of, so I think that um, that relates to this latest thing we're talking about and the point you just raised is that I think that a lot of people when they um, practice return to the breath meditation too much, um, they can be, yes, they may be able to, whatever is currently in the moment in, in their purview, um, they're hyper-focused and can see you get wonder and all from that. But I don't think that is enough for creativity. So yeah, you could hone that practice, but, but what you really should be honing and what I think kind of takes you to another level of, of creative awareness is not treating, um, uh, not having these, looking at these categories or, or uh, these pre as like, this relates to this, this relates to that, but keeping your mind really open to um, connecting the dots between what you find beautiful and wonder, wonderful in that moment and then 10 moments in the future. Yes. That's wonderful too. But what you find with a lot of hyper ex uh, meditation experts and the reason why I think they actually are lower chances of creativity is that they're so moment to moment. They're not connecting the dots between the moments. Great. I, I've never really been able to talk. I've never actually spoken, articulated this out loud. So I'm glad that you pushed me on this because that's how I would see the big difference. You can have both. You can I, have I'm so delighted to hear you saying this uh, after Eckhart wrote The Power of Now, which honestly, I love for the part that it speaks to, but there's a part that it doesn't speak to that by itself is actually really problematic. Is So I, I wrote a paper called The Power of Other Than Now, and it started by saying, you know, if you want to be totally present in the moment without past or future, it's a very easy way to do it that has about 100% chance of success, which is a, a frontal lobotomy. Right. And um, you'll actually be pretty happy most of the time. And, you know, really uh, present and excited with what is. And no one wants that. And it, it's, a, it's an important insight is that I think from an evolutionary point of view, our capacity for abstraction, the homo sapien capacity for abstraction is such an evolutionarily new function. That we just don't know how to use it that well yet. And so we cause beautiful things, but we also like, you know, we have a hammer and we're hitting our thumb with it rather than just a nail sometimes because we're just not that good at, good at it. And so then there are certain ideologies that say, look at all the pain to thumbs that have come from hammers, just get rid of them as opposed to learn how to use it well. So there is a, there's a lot of uh, interpretation of Eastern wisdom that says, look at when you notice, think about the past, you get all regretful and remorseful and nostalgic. And when you think about the future, you get anxious and worried. So just don't think about the past or future only be in the moment. And they don't notice when you think about the past, you can learn really beautiful things. And when you think about the future, you can imagine a more beautiful world and help to create it. So there's like a, a learning manual for your prefrontal cortex and how to do the uniquely human things well, as opposed to just say, we don't know how to do it, so let's reject it and be like the children and animals. Okay, completely agree. And uh, I think it's the perspective that, I mean, it's, it's a new perspective. I mean, this needs to be written about more. It's been a delight. We touched a lot of fun topics. Um, I hope people do go get Wired to Create. And um, I look forward to doing another dialogue soon where maybe we get to go into some of the topics at more depth because obviously we're just scratching the surface on these here. Well, I plan on visiting uh, San Diego uh, at the end of this year. Or so. It was an honor to be on the show. It's really, thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you, my friend. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. 
Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.